This is episode number 24 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. back friends for another episode. My name is Kevin Morris and I am so thankful that you have joined in to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Excited that we continue along week after week with these episodes and I'm excited to see the participation um, by how many places you can find this now, which is pretty exciting to me. Back when I started uh, thinking about a podcast, I thought, well, I'll just share this on iTunes, obviously, the top place. I'll maybe put it on Google Play for you Android people. Uh, But I soon found out that there are actually dozens of places that I can list this. And that's exciting for me because that means it just makes it that much easier for people to find this show. And that's good news because one of the ways that I want to invite all of you who've been listening for some time and have really benefited and enjoyed this show. Obviously, if you're a frequent listener, you must like something about this. So I wanted to encourage you to share this show with somebody that you know, but the good news is now you don't have to rely on them uh, necessarily listening on one platform or another because you can find this almost everywhere, at least that I know of, including SoundCloud. You can also refer people now to check out the Facebook page um, that I have, which is Better Bible Reading. You can find that very easily. And I actually post every episode from this podcast on Facebook. And when you see the post, you can literally just click right there in Facebook and listen to it. So, so many different places to find this. And um, I'm really excited about it because that, again, just means that's that many more people who get to participate and get to engage with the things that I talk about here on the show. So couldn't do this without you. It would be a vain pursuit if none of you were around to listen to this. So thanks so much. Well, we've been talking about a lot of different things here on the show. And now at the time of this recording, we have logged in two dozen episodes worth of content. Very exciting. And today, it's going to be probably a little bit shorter. Sometimes I say that, or I think that ends up not being. Uh, But I wanted to try to kind of cut things and keep keep them a little more brief uh, than I normally do. But today, we're going to be talking about, wait for it, church history. Now, you might be thinking, all right, Kevin, this is a podcast. I wanted to listen to a podcast episode. I'm not a seminary student. I'm not a Bible college student. I'm not a pastor. I'm not even a Sunday school teacher. I just want to know how to read the Bible. Why in the world should I care about church history? Why is that something I need to concern myself with whatsoever? And there's a few different answers to that, but one of the biggest ones that I just want to jump right into this and just go with it, one of the biggest ones is because we as people are naturally biased. We might be biased towards the kind of car or For you guys out there, Chevy or Ford, and then the precious few uh, Ram or Dodge guys, and then Toyo guys, of course, sorry, left you out there, could be biased about something. You could be devoted to one particular branch of things, one particular um, product or company, Coke or Pepsi, you know, those kind of things, 
and people are biased. We're when we hear something enough, think about it enough, we're going to naturally gravitate towards that and give it enough time and we're going to be um influenced and kind of tethered to that just by default, just by sheer principle. That's just how we're going to be. That's not always bad. Um, I should be biased towards my wife as a faithful spouse to her. I shouldn't one day decide that I'm actually going to come alongside another woman. That would be called adultery, and that would be bad. Bias would be a good thing in that sense. So it's not a naturally bad term, but it is something we need to think about because we are alive in the 21st century. Think about that for just a moment. In terms of church history, at least if we want to formally talk about church history as beginning, although I think it's better to even say church history began at creation when God formed Adam and Eve, they're part of his church, his people. But just in terms of dating things, let's just use the the general way that people describe church history, and that is starting with the first century. That means that we have 21 centuries of history. Now, think about um, those of you who like to trace your ancestry um, stuff. You want to know what uh, nationality your ancestors were, really how your family came to be, where they are today. So you go through those different websites um, and you find out information that you didn't know. Well, one of the reasons why those are so valuable is because it's hard to track down information. It's hard to find your great, 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 great grandfather's diary or assume that he even had one. So at best, you're going to get little tidbits or little like newspaper articles, maybe. And you're really not going to find out a whole lot of in-depth detail. Sure, you're going to find detail. That's what you're paying these companies to do is to find the details and give them to you to educate you on your family's history. But you're going to be limited on what you can find. Well, think about this for just a minute. If you're a Christian, if you're somebody who claims Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, you follow him, you worship him, and you want to know about the history of his people through the centuries, one way to compare it is imagine that you could have access to not one, not two, not ten, but 57 generations within your family. That's a lot of generation. That's a lot of detail. That's a that's like a that's like a gold mine of education. You'd learn so much, you'd know so much. It would make more sense of of who you are and a little bit of self-reflection. It would be a, an awesome thing. Well, that's what we have in church history. Now, using the term generation loosely, when the Bible talks about generation, it's generally thought of as 40 years. I did a little web search just to see what people are saying these days, 
And uh, when I did a little Google search for defining a generation, they say 30 years. I even read 29 years. So I just kind of met it in the middle. I said, okay, let me do the math. 35 generations, how many – or I'm sorry, 35 years, how many generations would that be at the time of 2019? It would be 57.68 generations. So that is a ton of detail. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are also a member of his church. So yes, we should pursue information on our own biological family history, but spiritually speaking, we not only should pursue a knowledge of our spiritual family's history, but we have access to an unbelievable amount of detail. We have books written, we have diaries, we have historical accounts of nations and rulers and kingdoms. There is so much to be said and so much to learn about God's church through the ages. And we have access to it. Now, why should that matter? Because we're biased. You and I have a tendency to live in a vacuum. A fascinating thing happened uh, this past week. My wife and I and my daughter and our all of our dogs evacuated from the hurricane that was coming. It was going to be, at least at the, at the initial time when we evacuated, it was going to be basically hitting us. It's going to, and at the time, it was like projected to be maybe a Category 3 or even a 4 when it hit us. So we, we've ridden them out in the past, and we decided, hey, uh, we don't want to do this. We're going to leave. So we left. Drove about five hours away. And it was amazing that at the time we left my little community, they had called a mandatory evacuation in the town. So food places, gas stations, businesses totally shut down. It became a ghost town, and they always say – even um, a further warning to make people want to leave the town. They say emergency services will be suspended because guess what? You call 911 with 70, 80 mile an hour winds. They're not going to send an ambulance out in 70, 80 mile an hour winds. That's, that's, a, that's an issue. So you're kind of on your own. So life as you know it ceases. The whole structure of the town, the governmental oversight with the local government just ends. Everybody is on their own to figure things out. You can't go get gas because nowhere's open. You can't go buy food because nowhere's open. You can't call 911 if somebody's breaking into your house because nobody's going to show up. So that's a significant change of life. But guess what? We get in our vehicle. We drive five hours away. And besides turning on the news, you would have no idea that that kind of thing was happening back in my hometown. Life was as normal as ever where we evacuated to. It was beautiful in terms of weather. It was vibrant. There was a lot of people there. I mean, it was just a normal week. And I thought to myself, kind of reflecting on that, you know, it's amazing how caught up we can be in our own little bubbles, our own little worlds, our own little vacuums, and realize how many other things are going on that we just are ignorant of. 
And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just mean we just don't know. We just don't know what exactly is happening besides what's right in front of us. And that's kind of how it is with church history. Let's kind of step on our toes for just a little bit. Now, I know, at least in my estimation, the last several years especially, I have noticed between social media and just kind of Christian news articles and things like that, there, there, is, a, there is a bandwagon mentality that people take when it comes to appreciating their church. I see it again and again and again. I, I like to call it really the I love my church movement challenge for you. Go on Twitter or somewhere that you can search little hashtags and do a search for hashtag I love my church. And you will see people all over the world, all over the country, giving some kind of accolade or some kind of bragging rights to their church or to their pastor because they've done something awesome. Now, okay, in one sense, that's cool. Give honor to whom honor is due. The Bible tells us to do that. But it's kind of a branding thing. It's it's almost my church is better than yours. Or it's almost my church has really figured things out as never before. My church has really revolutionized things as never before. And the problem that I see with that is, number one, now a lot of people that do this really don't mean any harm, so don't mishear me in saying this, but a couple of issues with it is that number one, when people do that, they don't realize that there's actually a whole lot of other people saying the same things about their church. So most people post it to be kind of different or to kind of stand out on their own social media news feed and say, I want to tell you about my church. Well, it turns out there's actually hundreds and thousands of people who are saying the same thing. I want to tell you about my church. I love my church. Listen to my church. So just in the immediate sense, everybody's already doing that. There's nothing unique about people doing that. That's a testimony to kind of an immediate ignorance of history because history also involves the present, what's going on um, in our own culture. But there's also a more important thing, especially for us who, who want to be good Bible readers, who want to have good sound, healthy, biblical doctrine. We want to believe good doctrine. We want to have good theology. The problem is when people normally say the, I love my church, sometimes it has to do with an event, but a lot of times it has to do with some kind of quote from the pastor. Some quote from the sermon. Listen to this. This is Twitter worthy. This is Facebook worthy. This is Instagram with a mountain background worthy. We're going to quote this pastor. He has said something so profound. It's never been said before. Well, it has. (laughs) It's been said a lot. It's been said over and over and over again. One of the most important ways that we can walk in wisdom is by looking to the Bible. But 
there's a particular book. You might think I'm talking about Proverbs. I'm actually not, although I love the book of Proverbs. The book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, when he writes this book, says something profound. Now, we should listen to him. Why? Number one, because humanly speaking, he was the wisest man to ever live on the earth. He was the wisest king to ever rule a kingdom. He was the richest king to ever live. And he says this. What has been done, or I'm sorry, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, what is he saying? He's saying we're biased to the present. We think the present is so innovative, so unique, so new, so shiny, so profound. And in some senses it is, right? We have iPhones. Solomon didn't have an iPhone. We have debit cards. We don't have to carry around giant gold bricks. We don't have to travel by camel or horseback. I mean, things have innovated, right? But at the same time, although the method might change, the substance is the same. What is an iPhone? Entertainment and communication. Is that anything new? No. It's been around since forever. What about a Tesla? The method's different, but it's just transportation. Is that new? Nope. You, get, you see what I'm getting at. We are biased towards the present. We are biased towards our own situation. And church history is God's gracious gift to us to protect us from being biased people. I can't stress that enough. Why should we read church history? Why should we study church history? Well, we learn a lot. I don't know if you are aware of this, but there is no inspection committee that takes every Christian radio song that is submitted before ever being allowed to be toured around as a band promotes their new album or to be put on a Christian radio station to be played again and again and again. Now, each unique radio station might have some kind of checks and balances, but generally speaking, any of those stations really just want to have a good variety of what's popular. They want to tailor to any unique category within Christianity. So you have the hymns people, you have the contemporary people, 
You have the fans of Chris Tomlin. You have the fans of Bethel. You have the Hillsong people. You have the Shane and Shane people. You know, there's so many different categories, and each one of those different groups that I just named are related to and tethered to uh, a particular denomination, a particular Christian movement, or what have you. Well, just because something's on Christian radio doesn't mean that it's correct, doesn't mean it's biblical. My uh, father-in-law joked with me one time about an experience that he had um, at a church that he attended one time, and he was up talking to the pastor, and this was right after the service, and somebody came up to the pastor and disagreed with something that he said. And their rationale for why they disagreed with what he said is because they said, well, that's not how the song goes. And I always thought that was a kind of hilarious little um, happenstance. And it, it is funny in some ways that people would say something like that. But it also goes to show you that we take whatever is in front of us as a given. And I can't stress enough how much that relates to church history. Now, this is fresh for me. This is a very um, relevant topic because um, I don't know if you've heard it before, but I'm actually a Bible college student, and I am um, currently uh, taking courses, one of which is a course on historical theology, which is one way of saying church history. But we're doing – we've got four different textbooks. We're doing a survey of really all of church history. But it is an amazing experiment to do this. Turn on your TV or for many of you that might not have cable, I actually don't have cable. So any kind of entertainment or whatnot is through the internet. So if you don't have cable, go on YouTube. Either way you do it, click on any given popular sermon or like conference speaker for Christianity and listen to what they say. It might surprise you that, number one, not everything they're saying is true, but number two, that almost any given heresy, which would be a teaching that goes against historic Orthodox Christianity, that almost any heresy that is said is not a new heresy. It's actually a heresy that's already been dealt with generations ago, centuries ago, in a lot of cases, even over a thousand years ago. It's a fascinating thing. We, we hear it said quite often, um, those who are ignorant of history or those who don't read history, however, however the quote goes, those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. The idea is there's a lesson to be learned in history, and if you don't learn that lesson, you're going to be ignorant of it, and you're just going to do it in a new generation. You're going to be guilty of the same thing that has already happened. Well, that's kind of how it is with church history in terms of doctrine, in terms of theology. Many people who take up new, unique ways to talk about God and we know that it's unbiblical, we know that it's not true, and we disagree with it, but we wonder how do we handle it. You might be surprised to find out that 
you can simply look to church history as your help because I would say nine times out of 10, whatever heresy that you're hearing is just a reinvention of an older one that's already been said, that's already been um, argued against, that's already been proven and shown to be biblically inaccurate. And it gives you a good way to go about it. It gives you insight into how our forerunners dealt with this. It's a unique insight that we have thinking about our kind of family history. We don't have this kind of insight. At best, we could ask our parents or maybe our grandparents about a few struggles we have in life or how did you deal with finding a job at this age, at high school, you know, just whatever kind of categories. We might be able to get a little bit of insight from our parents or our grandparents, but are you gonna, how are you going to get insight from 10 generations ago in your family? Well, we get to do that when it comes to church history because, again, they were so faithful to write, and we have their writings preserved. We have the Thomas Aquinas writings. We have the St. Augustine writings. We have the John Calvin writings. We have the Tertullian writings. We have the Justin Martyr writings. These are all figures in church history, real people, real situations, real lives, and dealt with doctrine, disagreement, how do we handle this situation? There's so many of these aspects of the Christian life that we just assume nobody has ever handled these, nobody has ever dealt with these, and we need to reinvent the wheel today because we surely have all the answers. Well, that might be a zealous way to go about it, but it might not be the best way. Because again, a simple look to church history will show you somebody's already dealt with this and they probably had a better answer than you do. Probably had a better answer than than I do. I don't want to single you out here. But you get what I'm saying. We can learn so much from the past, particularly the past of God's people through the centuries. One of the most important ways that we can look at church history is also to look at the tremendous suffering and trials that God's people faced and the amazing stories of how they never retreated their allegiance to Jesus, even in the face of death, even in the face of being outcasts, of being banished. There's so many instances like that. And my personal favorite is when I read my Heroes of the Faith, and just in terms of a technological standpoint, I asked the question, how in the world were they able to write so much without typewriters, without keyboards, without phones to do quick little voice recordings to jot kind of catalog ideas? By the way, they also, and of course I'm talking about earlier generations, not 40, 50 years ago. But how did they do this without electricity? I mean, you know, all of those aspects, just in terms of living conditions. But then you look at their lives, especially many of them that have biographies written about their lives, and you 
hear how much persecution they faced, how dirty and messy church life was for them at times, how much health issues they had at times. And uh, one that is very kind of sobering is how many of them lost a spouse or a child. And you look at all those and still they stand as giants of the Christian faith in what they produced in their endurance. And I asked myself the question, how in the world could they do what they have done? Now, the main answer is, is the Lord. God, he is pleased to raise up heroes in the faith for us to learn from. And that's a good thing for us to do. We don't worship them. We don't, we don't bow down and kiss their feet as if they are twice as saved as we are, but we learn from them. And that's a benefit and a gift that God gives to us. But we won't know that. We won't know how to deal with issues of our lives, how to live as a Christian in this category or this category, if we just simply try to figure it out today. And yes, we can get kind of our contemporaries in the Christian life. We can get advice from people in our church. We can get advice from our family members, if it's godly counsel, we can follow the advice of others who are alongside us. But the problem is they have blinders about the future just as much as we do. We don't know what's going to happen, but we have the unique perspective of looking to people in church history, seeing how their life played out, seeing what decisions they made. And we are, in some terms, generations, in some terms, centuries, in some other terms, even over a millennia removed from when they went through that. So we have the unique perspective of time to see how did that play out, not just decisions in life, but also doctrines that the church has adopted, formations of different denominations. That's another example. Myself, I am a Presbyterian. Um, have been formally so for a couple years now. And that was a decision based, number one, from the Bible and primarily from the Bible, but also from looking to church history, looking at why this denomination or that denomination was formed, what it has historically believed, how it wrestled with people's disagreements with certain doctrines. And so we are able to make informed biblical decisions by having the advantage of looking back to church history. That's an amazing thing that so many of us don't take advantage of. And I hope you can see with all of these kind of real life situations that it's a not only a matter of whether you're a whether you're a history guy, right? It's it's the old debate of what was your favorite subject in school? Well, I thought history was the best. No, I thought science was the best. No, I hated all of them. I liked PE. <laughs> but it's not a matter of whether or not you're a history person. It's a matter of God giving us insight, God giving us the gift of information, of reflection, of perspective, all of those things we find in church history. Now, if you're asking the question, okay, I'm with you. You have intrigued me. What do I do from, from here? How do I actually read church history? 
Well, obviously, you can read church history textbooks. There's many of them. Go on Amazon or wherever you can find church history. But I want to tell you that actually the most uh, common book of church history that you have, I am sure, is, you guessed it, the Bible. Now, the Bible isn't only an historical book, but it is not less than an historical book. I mean, you read the narratives of the Bible. You read so much of the Bible is narrative, by the way. I've covered this before um, so many different venues. You can find written articles that I've talked about, uh, the genres of the Bible, especially narrative passages. I did a podcast episode on it. You can find previous episodes. But so many of the Bible is historical accounts. Now, I don't mean that some of it is not true. I'm just talking about writing style. The book of Acts is a very important one of the New Testament. The books of Kings and Chronicles are very important ones in the Old Testament. I mean, there's tons of examples, but those are just two. We can learn a lot, historically speaking, looking back at the early generations of our spiritual family, the church, God's people, simply by reading our Bibles. We don't just go to the Bible to get a little bit of inspiration for the day, but we go to learn God has accounted these things and preserved them for us. I don't know how many of you are are faithful at reading in the Old Testament, but it might surprise you that the New Testament refers to the Old Testament as beneficial to us and something that we should learn from, and something that was given to us for help. Let me read this to you. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul reflects on Moses and God's people in the wilderness. This is mainly referring to the book of Exodus. And Paul gives this conclusion statement. Now these things, that is, the things that happened in the book of Exodus, these things, these historical accounts took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then moving down a little bit further, he repeats himself, says it a little bit of a different way though. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That really, in a nutshell, is the perspective we should have on church history. The book of Exodus is church history, but also what happened, not in an inspired sense, not in this is part of the Bible sense, but also the events that took place after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, the things after the close of Scripture are still church history, and they are still for our instruction. We can learn much from them. So in closing, I want to refer you to two books. There's a ton of them out there, but two books that I have found to be very helpful for me. The first one is called Know the Heretics. That one's by Justin Holcomb. It's published by Zondervan. You can find it in uh, audiobook form, and you can find it uh, printed copy. PDF, you name it, is very accessible. And the book is very small, 
and with the small size, it's only, let's see here, it's only 158 pages. So pretty short read. And what he does is he hits all the main heretics in church history. That would be guys who were biblically proven to be unorthodox in their view. Now, we're not talking about denominations at this point. We're not talking about the issue of baptism at this point. We're talking about the issue of was Jesus man or was he God? Or how was he both? We're talking about big time issues. We're talking about the difference between what biblically constitutes somebody as a Christian and not a Christian. And he walks through the top 10, I'm sorry, the top 12 heretics in church history. And they're very readable. Each chapter is only about 12 pages long or less. So would really encourage that because it's not just what's wrong, but it's how we come to biblical conclusions and doctrine. So it's a very, very good perspective in church history. Again, that's called Know the Heretics by Justin Holcomb. And then the second one is called Ecclesiastical History. And that's by Eusebius. <laughs> so that one is written by a Christian in just the first um, part of church history after Jesus' death and resurrection. So he was alive, I want to say the third century. Uh, the book is behind me. I can't quite get to it right this moment. Uh, but that is called Ecclesiastical History. Ecclesiastical is another way of saying church. So it's church history, but it's ecclesiastical history. That's just a English rendition of the Greek word ekklesia, which is what we translate in English as church. So ecclesiastical history. And that is written by Eusebius. That is E-U-S-I-B-I-U-S, -I -I Eusebius. And of course, he didn't write English back then, so it's been translated, it's been modified and put into um, the English language, so it's been edited, and it is a thick book, but the font is pretty large in it, and it's single column. It's not like the double column textbooks. It's like super small print, but this book is good because he literally picks up right at the New Testament and traces through um, several centuries of church history. Now, obviously, you can't go any farther than the time that he was alive. So it's only really the first, I guess in that sense, it would only be the first three centuries. So um, it's a good book because he addresses things like what other kind of historical accounts do we have of Jesus' brother, James? What happened to Peter? How did, right, when we hear about some of the apostles and how they died, um, although it's not 100% for sure, the historical account says this. Well, when people normally say that, one of the primary people that they're looking to is Eusebius, who was that early church historian. So he was writing the written accounts of how did the gospel spread here? How did the gospel of Mark um, become written and take its form that it's in today? Right? Those, those kind of issues that are kind of background issues, um, some of them were technical not all of them are totally verifiable, but 
he just writes them as they were reported. So he's not necessarily claiming that every single one of them is true without exception uh, because some of them he'll even say like according to tradition. So he's saying hearsay, right, in other words. But it's a really good book because for anybody who asks some of the questions of whatever happened to the Apostle Paul um, or you've heard like how did he die, you know, those kind of things. Well, it's it's touched on. It's handled in, in that book. So that one's a really good one as well. And I would say that those are two – uh, different types of reading. That one is literally centuries and centuries old. This one by Justin Holcomb that I mentioned before, No the Heretics, is copyright 2014. So it's a pretty new book. So I hope that I have whetted your appetite and you see how much we cannot afford to go without church history. It's meaningful to our lives. And it's a gift that God has given us, a unique insight, a unique perspective and angle on things that we just cannot have otherwise. So take up and read, take advantage of those two books, Know the Heretics and Ecclesiastical History. There's tons more that are great, but those would be two that I would recommend that have been really helpful for me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I appreciate your participation. And I appreciate being able to share all of this with you week in and week out. It means the world to me, and I hope that you're taking advantage of all the action steps that I give you on all the episodes. For more information about the show and about other things that I have going on, other resources I have for you, please check out betterbiblereading.com, and you will be able to find more and more right from there. Have a great rest of your day. God bless. Thank you.